Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alpha. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we react to Dominic Cummings giving evidence to the Health and Science Select Committees. And you ask us, are civil servants represented properly in journalism? So we're recording as Dominic Cummings continues to give evidence to the Health and Science Select Committees. So we're going to chime in now with our immediate reactions to what he's said so far and hopefully pick up some of the themes in a more in-depth way in future podcasts. You two, Alva and Stephen, you've had your eyes glued to, well, your screens because you can't sit in select committees yet. What struck you so far about how it's going and, and what he said? Stephen, do you want to go first? Yeah, so very good questions from, well, you kind of expect good questions from the select committee chairs, um, but also you know, from uh, Dean Russell, the new MP for Watford, on the same theme. Then the really interesting thing is basically people go like, okay, look, you've talked a lot about what went wrong. What institutional changes do you think could be made that would prevent this happening? And in all of them, he kind of flannel a bit and then go, did I mention that Boris Johnson is a bit rubbish and Matt Hancock should be sacked? Um, but the interesting thing in terms of the sort of politics of his intervention, which is, sorry, with the usual disclaimers and perhaps I'm being overly cynical, but I think at least partially it's about, you know, wreaking his revenge on those he sees to have wronged him and, and people he's fallen out with, was this kind of, you know, Boris terrible, the prime minister's girlfriend who'll never actually be given the dignity of her name, the prime minister's girlfriend nightmare, Matt Hancock incompetent. And then this nebulous office that doesn't appear to have a secretary of state in charge of it called the cabinet office. Now, <laughs> I think, I might be wrong, right? Um, but I'm th- fairly certain that the the cabinet office does have a secretary of state in charge of it. He's called Michael Gove, who, you know, listeners with long memories may be able to remind me of this. And maybe you know, Anoush, but did Dominic Cummings and Michael Gove ever work together? <laughs> <laughs> oh. And yeah, that, that I found the kind of weird silence around Michael Gove and the kind of sort of way that he kind of like, yeah, the whole sort of, you know, Rishi Sunak, amazing, brilliant, flawless. Um, I and others struggled to convince people that the, we shouldn't undo the lockdown in the summer. Just like, so where was this brilliant, amazing, wonderful Rishi Sunak on those issues, Dom? Now, there are a variety of, of interpretations of that, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But I thought those were the really interesting things out of this session. I may have missed lots of things with having come straight from it. I'm a little bit like, eh, I've been looking at a screen too long. But that's what I thought was the most interesting. Albert? So I watched the first hour of the Dominic Cummings thing and then I've been watching the clips and a bit of the Twitter reaction. So I still feel like I've I've caught a lot of what was going on. But I also think that the fact 
that I'm writing up an interview with Ed Miliband about his book that's coming out, it means that the two, the themes of both have bled into one. <laughs> I think maybe I'll annoy listeners by saying this and also maybe it won't really hold true by the time we've had the whole thing and, and the headlines out of it. But I think that the idea that we have of Dominic Cummings and the way he has leaked certain things and had this very, very long Twitter thread that he's been adding to for weeks was sort of showing the worst of him, his, you know, him, you know, him, his most callous and self-congratulatory, I think. And so... I would offer a kind of small defense of him. I think basically that all the criticisms that you would say about him are probably true. But I was just really struck in the first hour that for all of his faults, he is someone who likes to think really sincerely about how government's work and how decision making works and how it can be improved. And he is someone who tries to think a little bit differently and I mean, was, is this a good faith appearance or a bad faith appearance? I was expecting it to be much more bad faith, m- you know, much more dropping political bombs. I know he's dropped plenty, especially for Matt Hancock, for a man. But I think I just expected much, much more of that to the extent that it would just be unbearable to watch. Whereas actually, I just find it incredibly interesting. I, I mean, that description of it's suddenly dawning on them how serious it was and how badly prepared they were and how this overall system failure as he describes it and I think you know the hero of his story as he tells it is Helen McNamara who was in charge of proprietary and ethics at the cabinet office so a a civil servant senior civil servant one of these much maligned people in Dominic Cummings eyes comes into number 10 and says you know we're fucked, as he puts it, and that you know they don't have a pandemic preparedness plan, and it's the conclusion that he and the team around him have also just arrived at, and that's actually quite late in the day. If you're actually thinking about what we as the British public were doing at that point, a lot of people were not going to restaurants by then. A lot of people were already modifying their behaviour, and I think that puts it into a different context. But this this story of overall system failure and what people missed is just incredibly interesting. And I think because I'm also in Ed Miliband land at the moment, I've just been thinking a lot about how we ensure that good people get into our politics. And, you know, Dominic Cummings, for all that people think it's ridiculous that he said this, given that he, you know, campaigned for Boris Johnson and worked for Boris Johnson, he talked about, you know, he was basically criticising the calibre of politicians that we have, criticising the choice between Boris Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn at the last election. And I've just been really thinking about how Ed Miliband on paper is a more talented politician than a lot of the people in senior positions at the moment in terms of not so much in terms of style, but in terms of substance. He has a real head for policy ideas and a a sort of a real depth of experience in that regard and the kind of person who would want to engage really seriously with these things, perhaps more seriously than someone like Boris Johnson. He's also much more experienced than someone like Keir Starmer in actual policy and ideas. I, I just think that that came through really strongly with Dominic Cummings. I mean, even if you just find Dominic Cummings a really bad faith actor and sort of trying to, you know, position himself as some sort of genius, where even though repeatedly the whole thing he has to talk about, you know, oh, I'm actually quite stupid and oh, I, you know, under, you know, I was wrong and I didn't feel emboldened to, to speak out soon enough. And he has to keep admitting that he didn't give the right advice um, and has to keep apologizing for it. I just think that actually, I, I, it's just been very interesting to, 
as a as a step back looking at the way our politics works. He also talks about that incredible day where they're getting they're like homing in on the problems and kind of work about to work out that the pandemic was quite so serious. And then Trump wants them to start bombing Iraq and I mean, in the press gallery today, all the other journalists were talking about how it was very, very the thick of it. And, you know, the way that our everyday politics doesn't really lend itself very well to people stepping back and seeing the bigger picture and that we really need people. We also probably need organizations and systems to do this, but we really need people who are able to take a look at what really matters, a look at the things that are not urgent but important because suddenly they'll become incredibly urgent. And that was the sort of the big story of of that failure, that coronavirus was never the most important thing on a given day until it was, you know, it was far too late and the most important thing for months and months and months. Yeah, that's really interesting, I think. One of the bits that struck me that kind of chimes with that is when he just... You know, he'd been talking about we had to change the official policy. The the official policy was would have you know led to all of these people losing their lives. The, the herd immunity strategy was was the official policy, etc., which he's already been trailing in his tweets. And then he's sort of asked, well, why didn't you press the panic button? I think was the wording sooner and and change course. And he just said, uh, you know, and again, this is taken with a pinch of salt. You know, we don't know you know how much good faith is behind his answers. But he said, I was frightened. I was frightened because my decision could have ended up killing thousands of people. And I think that that bit for me struck me because we do forget that there are just like these flawed humans trying to make decisions. And this isn't to excuse any of the big and repeated mistakes that they've made and that we've reported on widely at the New Statesman. But it, you you do forget sometimes that they were dealing with something that did have such terrible implications for for so many families. And I think in his evidence, he's forgetting that too. You know, he admits that he himself was frightened, but he's he's laying it on thick on certain people who it seems that he's got an axe to grind against. Um, So that kind of struck me. But the thing that I was most intrigued by in the parts that I was watching, because I was preparing for an interview myself that I'm doing tomorrow as well, was, um, was just to match up what he was saying that they were saying about different policies when I was covering those policies. So the care home debacle, well, debacle scandal was the biggest thing where he was saying we were assured, you know, I don't know if that's true or not. We were assured that people were going to be tested before they were discharged from hospital into care homes, which we know happened en masse at the time. I mean, we were covering this and we were speaking to GPs and people in hospitals and families and care workers who were saying, no, no, this isn't happening. You know, they're just being sent from hospital to a care home because they need the beds. And there's no capacity to isolate people in care homes. There's no testing. There was not much PPE for the care workers for some time, etc. And in, in, and what he was saying really highlighted to me that whenever we were putting this to the poor press officers who were trying to defend what on earth they were doing at that time, we were being told that that wasn't the case. And that that really struck me that we were essentially being lied to. And I would like to hear more about the various um, disasters. I mean, the stuff is going to be coming out soon, probably while we're speaking about delaying that second lockdown and unlocking in summer and then the third lockdown as well. And I'll be interested to hear sort of how the justification to us when we were trying to cover these policies differs from what was actually happening inside number 10. Because sometimes when you go to the government with something that you're reporting on that is going wrong in, in policy terms, you sometimes feel it's pointless even asking because you're just going to be told something that you're really not hearing from from your sources and from people who are affected by the policy. And that is a sort of deep level of cynicism and I think incompetence that needs to change. Yeah, I would be lying if I said I didn't 
let out a deep, deep sigh when he did the, you know, a system which produces the choice between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn is a bad one. So, I mean, so to take just the Boris Johnson half of the equation, I can think of five candidates for prime minister that were better uh, for, you know, conservative candidates for prime minister than were better than Boris Johnson. Um, and they all ran for the Conservative Party leadership. So if Dominic Cummings had felt that strongly about the problem of that choice, then, you know, why not work for Sajid Javid? Why not work for Dominic Raab? Why not work for Mark Harper? Why not vote for, oh, Michael Gove? Um, yeah, so that was yeah slightly frustrating. But I think in terms of the bad faith, good faith, right, if you think about not all whistleblowers, or maybe not even most whistleblowers, but if you think about the history of whistleblowers and important stories and cases, a lot of whistleblowers are actually kind of bad people when you think about it. And one of the ways that people often try and attack the importance of their story is they kind of go, well, yeah, okay, we may have accidentally melted a bunch of Ivorians because we decided we weren't going to do, you know, proper health and safety before we got rid of all of these chemical waste. But the guy who did it was actually just angry and he didn't get his bonus that year. If we'd given him the bonus, he wouldn't have cared and we melted the Ivorians either. Um, you know, and, and this is often true about, about whistleblowers. So, you know, there was a bit where he kind of said, you know, oh, I said to the prime minister, the problem is, you know, you know, I can master the chaos, but you're more scared of giving me that power than you are of the chaos. And he said, and then the prime minister turned to me and said, well, the thing about chaos is people then turn to me to sort it out. And I just thought, no. That did not happen. That exchange did not happen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because that just has don't... had lots to pick up as well. I think that's one of the things that people will remember from this. That yeah. Yeah. that you know, and people will interpret that as Boris Johnson had the chance to sort this out, but he preferred us all turning to him for leadership. I don't know if that, that really sound like Boris no. Johnson. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I just feel like anyone listening. It just had such kind of. I mean, it had such. Huge Shaw Jan energy, didn't it? Like, uh, um, but the the thing is, it's like all of that stuff about the motives of a whistleblower are sort of secondary, including right the slightly weird way that he seems to genuinely believe. Then going, well, actually, I was arguing for this stuff on the twelfth of of March. It should have been obvious, right? Than than, or at least people ought to have been going, okay, yeah, the behavioural guys say people won't tolerate this, but. People are currently locking down well in excess of what we are asking them to do. So why don't we at least give it a shot? You know, like, let's let's see if people will lock down. The thing that is slightly weird about all of this is what forced the U-turn was the realization that this would mean not just loads of COVID deaths, but then, you know, pregnancy becomes an 80-20 survivability issue again. You know, people injure themselves in DIY and they just bleed to death, right? You know, all of that kind of stuff, which, again should have been obvious it's in some ways i think the most interesting thing in terms of how would you improve for the future is why didn't people understand the obvious implications of this now one solution is obviously just as you know like i had many bad takes in those but as i did say at the time right there is no reason not to just publish this the second the meeting is over right sage minutes aren't confidential right they don't go by the way we we know that hospital admissions are doing this because we've sent James Bond into every hospital. Like, no, the NHS just reports it back, right? It's not confidential. It's not mind-blowing information, um, which would have allowed some of the outside scrutiny and does fix the problem than, than one reason why governments are inherently dysfunctional. Because this is the thing which was a bit annoying about his whole, oh, you know, how, how did this system throw up this incentive? And it's like, well, this system threw up that choice because you and a bunch of other people decided that Brexit was more important to you than 
anything else, right? It's not like yeah, it's not like Dominic Cummings in 2016 was saying to people, actually, Boris Johnson is a great administrator. He was going, I want to leave the EU. And that was, again, his position in 2019. So, yeah, I think his motives are slightly frustrating, but uh, the underlying stuff about how systems fail is worth thinking about, even though I think, sadly, he doesn't actually get to a very interesting place himself on it. And it's a really good sort of... I think a lesson in the value of unreliable sources in a way, because like you were talking about last week and us thinking about how, the reliability of historical sources, clearly he's not a terribly reliable source in that he has a vested interest in telling the story a certain way and in exonerating himself from some of the worst mistakes and so and so on. But there's just so much value in his account and for all that it is human and flawed and incredibly subjective i think that's just the the number one thing that came through for me and even i think you know when we look back and look at the initial delay to lockdown which i agree is not actually the biggest failing of the pandemic it's later ones when we knew more and there was less of an excuse but given that they spent so long talking about the march lockdown and that was the only bit that i watched in detail i i'm just really struck that actually it wasn't that they weren't looking at it as a kind of lockdown or we pursue herd immunity thing. That, as you were saying, Dominic Cummings was, was very scared of going against the status quo because he thought that there was a real risk and lots of people thought that there was a real risk that they would just be pushing the wave of the virus into winter when it would be far worse. And you can completely understand how you would worry about that. You know, if the scientific community is not advising you to take this action, even if practically the rest of the world is going one way. It would be very hard to be the lone voice saying we need to lock down now when you could effectively just be pushing the peak into, you know, what we did actually see anyway, sadly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, seeing a, a far worse peak in winter when, you know, it's a colder temperature, the virus is spreading faster, more people are inside. It coincides with the flu. So, the NHS is under even more pressure and it's just a far deadlier pandemic. I think that that is a very understandable quandary and it does seem like the UK grappled with it more than other countries and obviously countries that locked down sooner were completely vindicated but you can completely understand how people who are really considering those problems would see the obvious short-term solution and be trying to think in the long term about what was better and then arrive at a different view. I think that's really interesting. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You, you Ask, Ask Us. Us. So our question excitingly today is from an anonymous civil servant. They ask, to what extent do you think the voices of civil servants are missing in political discourse? We're often the ones closest to political issues, but are largely unable to talk 
due to the requirement to be impartial. So they also recognise that journalists are in touch with civil servants off the record, but um, they worry that this isn't representative of sort of everyone on the front line. Alva, how do you grapple with that? Because I, I find that one of the most difficult parts of my job, which is talking to civil servants, but trying not to betray their identity or impartiality, because often they are very, very hesitant to, to talk. Yeah, and it's so funny because in section one, we were talking about the that, that early stage in March when people were voluntarily locking down um, that really, I think it was maybe the 11th of March that the last thing I did before, I think it was the afternoon before Boris Johnson held his press conference saying that we needed to lock down. I visited the Institute for Government. I mean, it was just sort of just background coffee, but I think love they the IFG. Yeah, we love the <laughs> IFG. Shout out to them. Um, I, I don't think they would mind me saying that I that I came in for a coffee with them because they, you know, they brief journalists yeah. a lot. And um, really, I wanted to talk to them about exactly this thing because I'm still relatively new to political journalism, and I really think that this is this is one of the big challenges that civil servants. I think, especially at that point, because this was when Dominic Cummings was waging war on the civil service, and civil servants felt like they didn't really have much of a voice to defend themselves or to defend the, the, the basically the institution of the civil service is definitionally unable to defend itself because it's impartial and doesn't speak and doesn't take political stances in that way um and it you know defends the government line of the day um and i i just sort of wanted to check in with them on, on how they thought that the civil service could be covered well by a journalist when civil servants themselves often feel like to do their job well they shouldn't really brief journalists I mean, one of their answers was kind of that the Institute for Government does talk to lots of civil servants and they all feel happy talking to them. So that's sort of one of the answers. But I do still think about it a lot because in my personal life, I know lots of civil servants. So I think that there are policy areas where I'm really aware of the perspective of civil servants. I also, you know, do do speak to some civil servants as sources, but I think that many of them are quite nervous about doing so because they aren't technically allowed to. The The flip side is that I think it is seen as corrosive to public life when civil servants are briefing journalists or hitting back against the government line. But it's also because we have a current government that doesn't really defend the civil service. And those are the conditions that have, have created this. But I think ideally you don't really want civil servants taking a public view on things. On policy issues, it's already the thing. In things like the lobby briefings, it is already policy to bring in civil servants from time to time to brief on particular areas. I yeah, I, I do sometimes feel like they're missing, but really it's just when you have Dominic Cummings bashing the civil service that you get these sort of really difficult things. But re I think basically if the government realised that it can't attack its civil servants like that, then it maybe wouldn't be so much of a problem. I don't know. What do, what do you think on it? Yeah, I think it's 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 a really interesting question. It's a good question because you do kind of sympathise with the questioner who must work in their job and they're an expert in whatever policy field that they're in and they must think, you know, these ministers go on the Today programme and completely mangle what we've said they should be doing and what the actual, you know, well-evidenced policy should be and they're not briefed properly or they, you know, they go against our recommendations and just announce, you know, stupid policies that we don't agree with, which, you know, when you speak to civil servants, they're full of these frustrations. But then, of course, you couldn't really get, you know, head of X policy on the radio to be asked about it because they would have to follow the, the government line on it. They would have to be impartial in their presentation of what policy the government 
government of the day was pursuing. You know, they, they are there to serve their ministers and of course they can try and influence them. But I think in, in if they were in a sort of like format of being questioned by the public or by a journalist, then they would have to stick to that because that's the rules, right? So I don't, it is a little bit of a dilemma for them. Where it can, can be useful is if, you know, they can give you a hint about what to FOI, you know, they know what's mm. what's written down so they can they can steer you into what kind of areas to interrogate, even if they're not telling you anything that you can necessarily use either on or off the record. So that's something that can be useful. So if you want to tell me something, dear questioner, then do 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 tell us what we should be looking into at the moment. So that's that's one way around it. I, in terms of frontline sort of public servants, you know, separate from White Whitehall, I mean, I find that they are much more open about wanting to tell journalists about what's not working and you know what to look into what to look closer at even if they themselves are also not technically supposed to do that and I think that's really valuable and you've seen that in terms of okay they don't count as civil servants so this is cheating on the question but like doctors and nurses you know in the NHS they're supposed they were supposed to ask permission of their hospital you know press office to speak but that the the COVID-19 crisis has completely um, uh, blown that away and obviously no one's going to get in trouble for talking about the truth um about their what's going on on their wards or you know what government policy or diktat is making it harder for them to do their jobs so that's been an interesting example of actually you are hearing voices from the front line coming through um and then recently i was speaking to someone who used to be quite high up in the met and they were saying we used to have police chiefs on the radio all the time answering questions and now we don't anymore because of you know various um, police training colleges and and structures that were that were wound down during the austerity years and now we have police and crime commissioners and also the Met Commissioner, and they're the only voices that you hear. And they said they thought that had meant that police are no longer able to make the argument for, for themselves in public as a sort of public service or a sort of piece of the public realm, while, rather than constantly asking political questions. So I thought that was quite an interesting argument too. Stephen? Whenever I write about a uh, public service, I get loads of really useful, spontaneous contacts from people who work on the front line of it, people who work in job centres, people who work in for the police, people who work, you know, um, yeah, from everything from being a GP's receptionist to, you know, across the sort of the stuff that we don't think of as the civil service, but is the civil service. And you get enough of it, then you have a sense of what median opinion is. The thing that is particularly tricky about the thing that in columns I tend to kind of colloquially refer to as Whitehall is, and this is a challenge you have with the parliamentary parties too, right? So let's use a political example here, right? A Labour MP phones you up on, you know, two Saturdays ago and goes, I am confused and angry with Keir Starmer. And you go, oh, interesting. But you think, okay, so you're someone who who nominated both Keir and Angela Rayner, so you are the average member, or you're the average supporter of both. And you're like, okay, but is your opinion actually representative of the average member of both? So you then have to make several other calls to go, okay, right, I've now got a picture of the average person. And the way that you continually contest whether or not your sources in Parliament are accurate is there are events, right? You know, if someone comes up to you and says, the parliamentary party is furious about these voter ID schemes, there's going to be a huge rebellion. And then it's like, 
the four anti anti civil liberties curtailment Tories that we all know the name of. You go, oh, okay, that person doesn't have a particularly good grasp on the parliamentary party. But the weird thing is, of course, there is never an event where you get a sense of, okay, what does the average treasury civil servant think? Right? There's not a point where they actually come together and they vote on whether or not they do actually like Rishi. So you are continually going, oh, so the ones I talk to say that they like Rishi, even the ones who don't particularly agree with him. But what if they're representative? And you kind of you're, you're much more aware, I think, at least, of the fact that, you know, the problem with all political journalism, whether you're writing about policy or writing about people, writing about both, is there's that weird bit of dark matter you just can't see. And this comes back to a question that comes up uh, in the U.S., I think, probably every six months, which is, you know, when someone says so-and-so is a good minister, what does this mean? And it's obviously quite fraught because pretty obviously, I think, for when some journalists say they mean leaks like a sieve. And I try when I do it to actually go, okay, how do I think this person is in terms of their effectiveness? But sometimes, of course, it's hard to tell, well, is this person effective because they have good junior ministers, because they have a, a well-run department? Are they themselves actually good at managing it? And of course, the problem is, is that when a civil servant um, gives you very useful context to how they see it, you can't know ever if that's fair. If then another civil servant says, so to give a, uh, a specific example, someone said to me the other day, oh, look, the reason why everyone said so-and-so was a bad minister is because everyone in this department is lazy, rubbish, resents having been taken out of the exciting, sexy thing that was the Department for Environment and Climate Change and hates being stuck in with these farmers. And the reason why they hate so-and-so is because they blamed so-and-so. And you go, well, those are two people. I can't poll the polled effort to find out which one of them is more representative. It's much harder to know if you're talking to the right people. Whereas after major votes, after elections, after leadership bids, you can continually recalibrate your sources in the parliamentary parties. But if say you if say, you know, we'd come back to the office and gone, actually no one's gonna back Boris Johnson. No one in the parliamentary party has decided to put their concerns about him to one side. At the end you go, Oh, okay, I I, I was talking to a very weird soil sample of MPs. And there's never an opportunity to soil sample with civil servants, which does make it more Tricky. And then also, as you say, you are continually aware that source protection is much harder because, you know, the, the thing I often struggle with in general is like, when do you use something where it being accurate will out the source? And how do you balance kind of the sort of this being important from the, well, you know, I might as well have been like, as Joe Blogg said to me. Um, and yeah, it's more of a challenge with the civil service. And probably the thing to add is that given that we all do speak to civil servants, I think the thing would be to say that probably civil servants shouldn't worry so much about speaking to journalists, especially the nice journalists at The New Statesman, because I feel like certainly in our jobs, the impression that I get from both of you and the way I feel I approach it is that when you are faced with a potential conflict of revealing too much or suggesting that was possibly from the civil service rather than from a political source, you end up just not using it. And so civil servants very often provide very useful things on background that don't get acknowledgement in print, but but the, the knowledge they're providing does very much inform it and improve its accuracy. And I think that civil servant sources are always protected quite well, certainly by us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. And you can find me at Twitter at Stephen KB. We're produced by Chris Stone and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to leave us a review. And if you'd like to submit a question to You Ask Us, you can email one in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk.
trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.